0: up and turn to um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, let's just bow for a moment for a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is our privilege to study the Scriptures today. It's our privilege to come and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, today. It is our privilege as members of the body of Christ to support one another, encourage one another. Lord, may we use our gifts to build one another up in this most holy faith. But God, I want to ask today specifically, I want to pray for the millions of unborn children who don't have a, a chance to defend themselves and are being, and this, this right to put them to death is being protected by laws in our nation. Um, Lord, undo this, this terrible wrong that's being done, this terrible evil. May we be people who stand up for the innocent, no matter what what stage of life they are. Let us be people who obey your word by realizing that, that all life is precious in your sight. And as Christians, may we lead the charge not just in in shouting with our words to protect the unborn, but by our actions, may may we love these moms who are struggling to know what to do and have nowhere to turn. May we love the orphans who don't have a home, whose lives may have been spared, but don't have opportunities to have a loving family. God, let us as believers not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And God, I want to pray for these teens who are coming back from this trip this weekend. Lord, I I pray that you've been doing a mighty work on their heart and that that would continue in the days and weeks to come. And that the gospel would spread in our community as a result of what you're doing on their hearts. Lord, it would just be amazing to see a revival in this county and be able to look back and see that it started with teenagers. Teenagers who got passionate about Jesus Christ and went home and told their parents about Jesus. And one by one, you began to save people and their families. And then the gospel began to spread from there. What a a great testimony that would be. Lord, we look with great anticipation to see what you want to do in their lives. Lord, now as we look at some uncomfortable truths in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts and give us humble hearts to see where we may may need to grow, where we may need to repent, where we may need to have a better understanding of our earthly possessions. As we seek to pursue contentment, may we find it in you, And in you alone, we thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, throughout the book of 1 Timothy, Paul has continued to call out these false teachers. And it's it's the key theme of the book. It really seems to be one of the primary occasions for Paul writing this letter to his, his young son in the faith, Timothy. And as they've been challenged over and over and over to watch out for false teachers, Paul now again returns to this topic to uh, put the spotlight on some of the things that they are teaching. And the title of today's message is Defending the Faith and Pursuing Contentment because there were teachers who not only distorted the gospel but promoted a false idea of contentment through their teaching. And we'll talk about that as we go forward. But let's read these verses that we're going to study together this morning 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For if we brought nothing into this world, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food, And clothing, with these, we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs." We see here presented the the false gospel of materialism. These false teachers brought a message that was rooted in stuff, in making a a financial gain. And as we think about their message in verses 3 and again in verse 5, we get a picture of of truths that were distorted. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, the the word indicates something that's completely opposite of what they were taught, a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound or the stable or the true words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And then he goes and describes this teacher this teaching that they had brought in was not just something that Paul disagreed with. It wasn't just something that was like, oh, he's got a little different nuance to his preaching or I don't really like his style. It was a different teaching. It disagreed with the sound words of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that when, when Christ came, the gospel that was proclaimed, the gospel that was his death, burial, and resurrection, that salvation is faith alone through him, that, that message is completely distinct from the message that these people are coming in and trying to teach. He says, if anyone preaches this message, his character, his life will demonstrate that he's not a believer in the gospel. Furthermore, end of verse 5 tells us that these teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Some of your translations will, will bring out the meaning there that uh, is speaking of financial gain. We'll talk more about in the, that in a moment. But their message was one of, of, of controversy. It was one that, that focused in, he says, on a quarrels about words in verse 4. They nitpicked little unessential things. If, like, your favorite doctrinal discussion has to do with the little horns in Daniel or what the, the this particular bowl in Revelation is talking about, you may be heading down this path. Like, when Paul preached the gospel, he put the spotlight on Jesus Christ, on loving one another and loving Jesus. Like, if if you're not talking about that, you may be taking the spotlight off of what's really essential here. He says these people quarreled about words. They picked little things and they made a big deal about them and were nitpicked on small, unessential things. He says their message is one that leads people away from the sound words of Jesus Christ. The second thing we see about the false gospel of materialism is uh, the character of these teachers. Verses four and five, Paul does not pull any punches. He says he's puffed up with conceit. You can kind of get a word picture there someone who's proud, their chest is puffed out. C.K. Barrett says uh, this man is a pompous ignoramus. That's the idea of this word right here. Someone who is full of themselves, there's pride just oozing out of them. They've got the answers. These truths that you've heard from the apostles, these truths of Jesus, they're good, but I've got something more to offer you. There's pride that fills their discussions. It says they have an unhealthy craving for controversy. (laughs) That, That word craving has to do with an unhealthy appetite. I have some appetites for unhealthy foods, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about unhealthy appetites for fighting. Like you long to get into it with people. You just like to stir up the pot a little bit. That's what these teachers uh, came with. This was their character. And these quarrels, he says, in turn produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. You get the idea here that that the, the teachings of these, these men did not bring the kinds of things that we call like the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace. They didn't bring unity in the body of Christ. They didn't help us love and serve one another better. Rather, these teachings stirred up envy and all kinds of strife in constant friction. I love how the J B Phillips paraphrases, the J B Phillips translation paraphrases these verses. He says if anyone tries to teach some doctrinal novelty which is not compatible with sound teaching which we base on Christ's own words which lead to Christ-like living, then he's a conceited idiot. <laughs> His mind is a morbid jumble of disputation and argument, things which lead to nothing but jealousy, quarreling, insults and malicious innuendos, constant wrangling. In fact, among men of warped minds who've lost their real hold on truth, but hope to make some profit out of the Christian religion. He doesn't pull any punches there. Pompous windbags, conceited idiots. You can see what Paul's real thoughts are on these teachers. But the key there is at the end of verse 5, Philip's says that they, they, they hope to make some profit out of Christian religion. The CSB translates that and says, Ima- they imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. These teachers had turned ministry into a way of padding their pockets. They were hoping to get wealthy out of the proclamation of the gospel or their version of the gospel. You see, the scripture teaches that when you follow Christ... Uh, it's, it's, it's not super popular. Jesus talked about it in terms of being a narrow way. Uh, he said things like, um, I, I want you to forsake everything and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul says later on, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Those aren't the kinds of things that fill stadiums, that, that, that pad the pocketbooks of those who preach the gospel. But there is another gospel, lowercase g, a gospel that is driven by greed, which says if you do the right things, if you approach God in the right way, if you have enough faith, then you can be like us and be wealthy and healthy and have no problems. This wasn't just an isolated situation that Timothy had to deal with. We see this as uh, Peter um, talks about, um, and uh, I think I put the wrong verse up there, but it's in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who, seek, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them. Bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So you, you see here, Peter's dealing with a, a serious situation, denying the master that bought them. And he says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And listen to what he says, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. See, their heartbeat was driven by greed. He goes on in verse 14 of the same chapter to say they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls and they have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. <laughs> the, the scripture is not soft or unclear about what God thinks about ministers of the gospel who, who are driven by And promote a gospel of greed, a gospel of materialism, a gospel of wealth. And lest we think that this is some obscure first century issue, you don't have to look far on Christian programming, quote unquote Christian programming on cable TV, to see that this is what is behind so much of what's passed as preaching on TV today. When you turn on the TV and you hear a guy like Jesse Duplantis say God told him he needs a $54 million jet, we might be dealing with 1 Timothy chapter 6 stuff. When you can hear a guy like Kenneth Copeland tell you to give to his ministry, when you find out he has a net worth of $700 million, a pastor, with a net worth of $700 million, we have to think that we might be dealing with some 1 Timothy chapter 6 stuff. In our culture, when a guy like Joel Osteen says things like, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, and to fulfill the destiny he's laid out for us, I have to think that in our culture, we may have bought into an unbiblical gospel in many places. When we believe that it's God's will, God's calling on our life to amass stuff and money and possessions, we're completely missing the boat. Honestly, it's like some, some of these, these pastors and, and teachers out there got ready to start ministry and they decided, they kind of were like, well, what do I want to characterize my ministry? What, what, should be, uh, what should I be known for? And then they stumbled across this passage in 1 Timothy 6 and was like, oh, I want to be like these guys. When Paul's saying, don't be like these guys. Like, honestly, their, their message is exactly like what Paul is saying, don't do this. And yet, it's become prevalent in our nation. On the back of your notes, there's a, I reference a, um, a, a documentary that was released in the fall. If you get a chance to watch it, it's on Amazon. It's on, uh, you can get on vimeo.com and watch it. It's called American Gospel. Um, it can expand on this much better than I ever could. It's, it, it's lengthy, and you probably will have to watch it in a couple settings to just process uh, what's going on there. The prosperity gospel has infiltrated our nation, and it's exactly what he's saying in verse 5. They imagine that, that godliness is a, gain, is a means of material gain. I love what John Piper says regarding the prosperity gospel. He says, it's no gospel at all because it offers to people what they want as natural people. You don't have to be born again to want to be wealthy. Therefore, you don't have to be converted to be saved by the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says it doesn't deal with the cross and sin and the need for salvation. It's all about you getting stuff. And it sounds good if you don't care about what the New Testament teaches. But God's got a better way. But before we look at that, let her see. We see the consequence of these teachings. And verses 9 and 10 tell us, and just let the weight of these words fall on your soul. Because not only do we have this issue in, in this segment of American Christendom that says God wants you to be rich and to pursue that, but really that's, that's kind of the American dream, right? I mean, make money, get yourself stable, Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Be your own person. Be successful. And if we're not careful, we can can absorb that teaching and somehow try to accommodate that into New Testament Christianity when the Bible teaches that we can't. He says in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. He doesn't say some of them. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You hear what Paul is telling us about the love and the pursuit of stuff, it will destroy us. If we long to find our contentment, our fulfillment in our possessions, he says, you will be pierced through with many pangs. He says, you fall into a snare and many senseless and harmful desires that... Plunge people into ruin and destruction. That word plunge is the word that is used in Luke chapter 5. When Remember when Jesus told the disciples to go and uh, cast their nets on the other side? And they all they started pulling up like all kinds of cr- just a crazy catch. And so they, they needed two boats to get all the fish in there. But the boats still began to sink. That word plunge is that same, same Greek word. The, 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 the wealth, the desire to accumulate stuff will plunge you into ruin. It will sink you. If we are looking for fulfillment, for contentment, for happiness in our stuff, we will only find destruction. Now notice, I just want to make sure that we're not misquoting uh, verse 10. Uh, some of you may have heard verse 10 as, um, for money is the root of all evil. That's, that's not what the text says uh, money, is, money can be a very good thing when it's recognized and put in its proper position. And he's going to deal with that right at the end of chapter 6 in, in a week or two here. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. When we place stuff at the top of our priority list we will see the fruit of destruction, devastation in our lives. We must not be lulled into thinking that materialism is no big deal. One of the reasons this becomes so deadly serious is that when you love money, you fail to keep the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before you. In fact, Jesus repeated the idea in Matthew 6.24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He said, you can't serve God and money. And as Americans, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say this is probably one of, if not the greatest danger facing the American church. Affluence and wealth and ease and comfort And you don't have to look far to find teachers that say, that's okay. Be okay with pursuing ease and comfort and wealth. You will find people who call themselves pastors telling you that. And it appeals to our flesh because having stuff, it's kind of nice. The gospel talks in terms of forsaking all to follow Jesus. Jesus himself said, the son of man has no place to lay his head. And at the root of this is a discontented heart. Satan, Thomas Watson says, loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. How about you this morning? Are you content with what God has given you? Are you grateful and satisfied with what you have? Or is there a longing for more? This emptiness that you feel like will be fulfilled by the next raise, a better vacation next year a new toy, an addition of another hobby. There's a better way. That's what number two is. It's contentment. You see, Paul, in the middle of this challenge to watch out for these false teachers, reminds us in verse 6 that godliness with contentment, that's great gain. Verse 5 says that these teachers believed that, that money... Financial gain was their, their, their necessary pursuit. But Paul says in verse 6, godliness with contentment, that's where the gain is. To live a godly life, a holy life, a life in pursuit of a relationship with God and being content. If you want to be satisfied, if you want to have gain, if, if you want to be content in Christ, pursue godliness with a heart of contentment. I love what uh, Jeremiah Burroughs how he defines contentment. He says Christian contentment is that sweet inward quiet gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That was the heart of the Apostle Paul. He says in Philippians 4.11, he says, no matter what situation I'm in, I have learned to be content. He says, I know how to abound and to be in need. There were times when Paul had had all of his financial needs met. And there were other times when he was pinching pennies together. And he says, you know what? I've learned how to be content no matter what situation I am. Because his contentment was rooted in his relationship with Christ. In fact, he tells us here in, in the text He says, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. We weren't born with stuff and we can't take stuff with us. Uh, Many pastors have used the illustration, um, you don't see U-Hauls behind a hearse. Until I saw recently on Twitter a picture of a hearse hauling a U-Haul and a pastor wrote, well, there goes that illustration. (laughs) We all know though, it's not really going with him. You you can't take your stuff with you. And if you make your life about pursuing stuff and more and more and more, if you buy into that he who dies with the most toys wins sort of mentality, you will find yourself here where Paul is talking about being plunged into destruction. Rather, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. This morning, are you thankful for what God is giving you? Are you okay if God never gave you another thing? If you never got another present in the world? If you never got another pay raise in the world? Are you you content? What if God began to take away some of your stuff? The the statistics say uh, um, that if you make, what did I write down? $25,000 a year you're in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. Think about that right now. Chances are, chances are the majority of us in this room are within the top 10% of the wealthiest people. Maybe the top 25. He he says in verse 8, If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I, I did all kinds of research into the Greek here thinking that maybe there was a, a textual error. Certainly, Paul had a longer list in verse 8 than what's really there. Not just food and clothing. Come on, Paul. I, I need two vehicles. I got to have cable. Uh, I, I got to be able to go on this awesome two-week vacation in the Bahamas next year. And, and, and on and on and on we would like to add to the list. Fill in the blank where you know your greatest temptations are. Well, I, 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 I mean, it's no brainer. We got to have this, and and I mean, everybody in, in my neighborhood has one of these, so I mean that should be in the list too. He says, "Do you have? Are you warm? And and do you have something in your bellies? Then let's be content." That really pairs it down. Does it? Pairs it down uncomfortably for me. I don't know about you, but he says, "Let's be content. If you have something to eat and you have a jacket." then be happy, be content. Don't be chasing after the greener pastures, the next big thing that once I get there, I'll be happy once I get this. He says contentment needs to be found in Jesus Christ. So As we close, I find this passage so incredibly applicable, at least to my own heart and life, and I hope you do too. There are three things I wrote down by way of application. What, What God is saying to us, what God is saying to us. First of all, we need to be alert to the danger, dangers of materialism. Be alert to the dangers of materialism. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19, 23, he said, truly I say to you, listen to these words, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty. Meaning that it's not easy For a rich person to be right with God. If you are making $25,000 per year, you're in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. Chances are, Matthew 19.23 is talking about you and I. It's difficult for people with lots of stuff to enter the kingdom of God. We need to be on high alert against materialism in our hearts. My brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to go home and find some time today to get on your knees before God and ask him to reveal where stuff might be too important to our hearts because this is is a matter of eternity. This is not just a pastor said, I probably shouldn't spend money on that that extra hunting rifle this week. This is like, this is soul, eternal soul issues. Like if, if I am In love with stuff, I may not know God. It's that serious what he's talking about here. And if our pursuit of contentment ends with the things that I have, I may not know God. That's how blood earnest, serious the Apostle Paul is. And Jesus is in these words. Ask God that he would reveal to us an awareness of the greed and the discontent that is lurking in our heart. Ask God to give you a thankful heart. You know, at the, at the, at the root of discontent is, is unbelief. You know that? What we're saying when we're not thankful, when we're not contented, we're looking at God and saying, you really could do better than this. You really could do better than this. Look what I have here. This is, this is not acceptable. Really, it's a lack of belief in God's goodness. It's a lack of trust that he actually cares for you and I. When we're unthankful, when we don't feel like we have enough, when we don't feel like we're being provided for, that neighbor down the street got to, got to go to Disney World again this year, or, or this person was able to buy a brand new bass boat, and I'm stuck with this one that's six years old or 26 years old. We begin to grumble and complain. That, that is born out of an unbelief in the goodness of God. God. Be alert to the danger of materialism. The second thing I want to just encourage you with is be generous. Grow in your generosity. He tells us, if you have food and clothing, be content with that. And then be willing to to give away the rest. Be willing to be generous with the things that God has blessed you with. In, uh statistics say that Christians, on average, in North America, on average, give 2.5% of their income to church. That's, that's Christians, 2.5%. And then out of that 2.5%, uh, statistics also tell us that the churches then give about 2% of that to fund overseas missions. Based on those numbers, that means for every $100 a North American Christian makes, he gives 5 cents to the rest of the world. 5 cents out of 100 dollars. Now, I'm grateful to say that our church does better than that. You guys are better givers than the 2.5%, and uh, we give much more than that to take the gospel around the world. But we're reminded that that as believers, if we want to break free from materialism and the love of stuff, we need to be generous people. What we do with our money says volumes about our faith. John Wesley illustrated this well. The famous Methodist pastor who lived from 1703 to 1791. And in 1731, he decided he was going to begin to limit his expenses so he'd have more money to give to the poor and to help others. And so that year, uh, his income was 30 pounds. And his living expenses was, was 28 pounds. So he was able to give two pounds away that year. Well, the next year his income doubled, but he still decided to live on 28 pounds, which enabled him to give away the remaining 32 pounds. And for the next two years, his income continued to increase so that by the fourth year he was able to give away 92 pounds to the poor. Now, we're Americans. And we have no idea what a pound is. So I found that in present-day picture, in present-day figures, Wesley got to the point where he was making about $160,000 a year. His income was $160,000 a year, but he lived like he was making $20,000 a year. He looked at his his situation, he said, what do I absolutely need? And he said, I'm going to give the rest away. (laughs) What if that kind of a radical generosity gripped our hearts? What's the bare minimum I need to take care of my family? and to pay my bills, and then just help people with the rest. That kind of generosity breaks you free from the love of money. And then finally, by way of application, I just want to remind us to be satisfied in Christ. The gospel sets us free from materialism. Jesus Christ came to die for us. Did you know that? You and I, had a huge sin problem. The Bible says that we are enemies of God, separated from God because of our sin. And Jesus Christ is the perfect God, um, 100% God, 100% man, came to earth to die in our place. And the Bible says for, for those who trust in him by faith, we're set free from the bondage of death. We're made alive to Christ. And when we have a relationship with him, the Bible teaches us that we can be all satisfied in him. The gospel sets us free from the need to fill those gaps in our life with other things, whether they be addictions or hobbies or materialism or money or you fill in the blank. When we can become satisfied in Christ because He is our all in all, we realize that we're set free from the pursuit of other things to try to fill those gaps and holes where so many others are looking to find fulfillment. This morning, I'm reminded from these verses. God's not telling us that money's evil. Like I said, we'll see that in a couple weeks. It's not. But when money becomes our first love, when the pursuit of material gain becomes our first priority, the Bible tells us that means we've lost our first love. You can't serve both God and money. One or the other can take priority, but not both. Let's be people who learn to be content in Jesus Christ, who learn to be satisfied with what we have. When we're sitting around at the end of the night, and we're tempted to complain about all the things that we don't have. Let's turn it around And turn it into a praise service in our home where we go around the room with our kids. I know it's not Thanksgiving, but go around the room with our kids and say, God, what are you thankful for? What has God blessed us with? How how has God provided for us? And realize that the ultimate sort of source of contentment is not going to be in material things. It's found only in Jesus Christ. If you don't know that contentment that's found in Christ, I pray today that you do. Be satisfied in him. Let's pray. Father, teach us to be people who are content. Teach us to be people who are satisfied in lives of godliness with contentment. Realizing that's where the gain is. You want us to experience joy. You want us to have a full life. But God, let us not give in to the temptation that that comes from having stuff. Let us be reminded day in and day out that true satisfaction, true contentment, true happiness and joy can only be found in Jesus Christ. May we live like we really believe that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're so grateful for the word of God, church. Man, <clears throat> two uh, really good challenges this morning. Thank you, Pastor. Um, we could just be doing so much better, right? And I just pray that this week maybe we're a little bit more cognizant of where we're at. But the good thing is today's a new day. So if maybe we're not quite reading where we're supposed to be. We can start over and we can make it afresh. So, amen?